welcome back to our special episode on the Bites and Bites podcast, where we've been exploring the nexus of food safety and cybersecurity with our esteemed guest, Dr. Darren Detweiler. If you haven't yet, make sure you listen to part one of our conversation to hear all of Dr. Darren's wisdom. In part two, we're set to explore solutions, not just in the technical advancements shaping our food industry, but also ethics, courage, and integrity by learning from past incidents. Join us as we unravel the complexities of the digital transformation in food safety and what it means for consumers and companies alike. I think that this is why, and I know you and I have spoken about this prior, that cybersecurity is such a vital portion of food safety culture now. It has to be included in conversation. Well, not only in conversation, but so I want to kind of roll or, or pull back the curtain. So in the food industry, we have what's referred to as HACCP, hazard analysis. And, you know, we look at the idea that every opportunity for there to be a failure in food safety has to be evaluated. Some are more critical than others, right? And if you can identify them and then rate them based on likelihood and severity, you can say, okay, well, this right here is much more of a critical point because this is the point point where it goes into the freezing. This is the point where it goes into this or, you know, that kind of a thing, right? And I honestly think that we have to think about technology in the same way. We have to look at data collection and data security in the same way, looking at the likelihood and severity of certain things. Now, you were talking about Campbell's, right? And, you know, the idea of brand, the taste, and consistency of the taste. But what some people might not think about is that let's talk about it, just any one ingredient. Like, let's look at the, I don't know why I just thought about this, but, you know, like beef and barley. Yeah. So that barley comes in as a seed. And those seeds, A, they have to be inspected. They have to, you know, run through metal detector, three, they go through various tests. Uh, but they also go through a bit of a washing. And in many cases, it's not just a wash. What they'll do is put it into a container that uh, keeps it in water. For, I don't know, I'm making up time here. But let's say somewhere between 15 and 45 minutes so that it starts to kind of soak out of its seed. That water is tested, treated. And it's, it's very much this specific ratio of essentially bleach and vinegar added to the water for that process to make sure that, that it is it is good. Now, mind you we're talking you know like half all of these to five gallons of water kind of ratio i mean you're really pulling about the curtain i'm sure people just eked <laughs> right but imagine if if that is all regulated by monitors and sensors in terms of that much of a ratio of bleach to that what if someone were to go in there and corrupt it such that it added way too much bleach to it and no one was able to catch that and now you've got an ingredient that is is no longer actually safe within the soup, right? What if you have other chemicals? There's a lot of chemicals that are part of the process. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of acts that are part of the processing. You know, that same can of soup at the end will actually go uh, down after it's put into a can uh, and, and a label's put on it. It'll actually go through an x-ray machine to make sure that maybe that there's not a dent in the can or some structural failure with the can or that there's metal debris inside a kind of thing. And that is monitored and there's computers because they go by at such a fast rate. They're using technology to, you know, look for these telltale signs. Kind of thing. Again, what if someone to make it such that it's it didn't for what it's supposed to be looking for. There, there's so many places where you can look at the not the obvious place where technology is being used and where it's a critical control point, where if that control point is not adequately monitored and action is adequately 
taken if need be, it could cause significant harm to consumers. You know, we can look at this too, even beyond or beyond food manufacturing. You could look at it in terms of water. You could look at the idea of someone contaminating water. You could look at it in terms of time and temperature and pressure in some cases and humidity control of food that's distributed today. There's technology that's being used to make sure that if food is put into a refrigerated truck, it goes from here to there, that, that it never gets below a certain temperature or above a certain temperature. And, you know, that's all checked with technology and sensors and it's collected. And, and in most cases, you know, it's 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 like artificial intelligence that is in play that is sending certain alarms and sensors that, that go into all that. And all this kind of comes together in terms of the bigger picture of, you know, if we want to have products that go farther into, you know, other states and, and things like that, then we need to be able to control them. And we need to be able to understand that you know, protecting food has to be taken, those steps have to be taken the entire journey. And today, you know, we are looking at how can technology basically allow us to do that faster, cheaper, and more effective. And when it doesn't do that, we're essentially playing on the assumptions and beliefs. I think in some ways, the thing that scares me about this the most, I mean, there's plenty of things that scare me with us. Attack factors are attack factors, but it's the fact that we're not training our staff up around it, where it's being shoved in and people are just expected to sort of deal with it. You have people that have tribal knowledge that have been in a company for 30 years that have stood in the same line forever, and they're not being trained properly on the tech that's being surrounded or surrounding them, or they don't understand the importance or what could go wrong with it because it's just supposed to be the silver bullet and the thing that's going to make everything go great and work wonderfully and production's going to fly out of here faster than it ever has before. And it's amazing. And the food's going to stretch further across the world and all these beautiful things that we hope it does and should do. But there's so many steps in between, as you've said, Darren, that just faults. We could just bomb out at one end or the other and not even know. And then you've got a whole other problem where your sandwich that was pre-made the day before wasn't refrigerated properly, as I believe you uh, ran into at an airport recently. So why would you want to buy that sandwich? Because the extra yeah. was made perfectly and then it's not being stored perfectly at the end. Yeah, it has nothing to do with the maker or even the distributor has to do with the inability. I mean, literally, the analog thermometer was in the red and the digital it read the temperature that was in the danger zone. But it's ironic is that uh, late last night, I actually got an email back from the company saying, please, our system is such that you have to submit a receipt for us. You know, take a picture of your receipt. Well, I didn't buy the product because I knew better, you know, kind of a thing. But it's like, do you realize how many weeks ago that was? Meanwhile, since you and I met up um, last in person, I went and visited with a company in Northern California. I'm not going to name the company or even the product. So I'm meeting with this company and they have totally revised how they make their product. And it's as if they went from, let's say, 26 um, HACCP steps down to five. Wow. Incredible, incredible. And it's like, it's such a simple thing. But here's what I kind of took away from this. The owner of the company was working with the federal government post 9-11 looking at food security. I'm sorry. I'm see. I made the mistake there. <laughs> the owner of the company back 20 years ago or so was working with the federal government in terms of food uh, defense. Looking at so, so the World Health Organization came out right after 9/11 and said, "Look, yes, nuclear, biological, chemical warfare is out there, but attacking a developing nation through is, is far more easily, cheaper, and effective way of causing political and economic disruption uh, that can paralyze a small nation." And so the U.S. government was looking at this in terms 
terms of our food distribution. And you start looking at these patterns. They went in and they were collecting data literally from, from farm to fork in terms of where and how long. How long would it take some of the, they looked at like 25 signature different types of foods, like some were manufactured and some were brought. And, you know, they looked at the multi-state nationwide distribution. They looked at how long it would take to get from, like, let's say from the farm to the store, to the consumer, how long would it take for a consumer if they got sick to be uh, hospitalized and how long would it take for tests to come back and then if enough tests were taken and if they were reported then you have central you know nationwide database collecting information how long would it take for the cdc to say there's a pattern here there's a problem that source kind of thing and it was you know they're using their words it was kind of an eye-opener in a very scary way in terms of how how vulnerable name of commerce and and advancement and you know being able to you know increase the markets all that kind of stuff it's like i know we can buy i'm making this up but i know we can buy um tomatoes from our own state here but if we buy tomatoes that are shipped out of this state over here by this company we can save seven cents you know kind of a thing right okay but yeah sure you can save seven cents because of the centralized nature and the packaging and distribution all that kind of stuff but at what cost at how much additional vulnerability you know when you look at convenience and slightly lesser cost to the consumer but you got to balance that in terms of vulnerability level of vulnerability uh, it's early for me that's got to be taken into consideration and some foods we have seen more and more frequently as being frequent culprit foods of certain events and we're not dealing with some I mean for everything from raw slash unpasteurized milk to leafy greens but there's also we've seen a rash of foods with new ingredients that aren't even like tested and approved there was that whole thing with terra flour in the daily harvest that sent people to the hospital decisions are being made on available information and if that information is delayed or skewed or or sabotaged it's you know it's it's not like and this kind of goes back to a statement you said earlier this image of the the little farmer and his family with their farm down the street and the out in the county kind of a thing. No, it's, it's, that image is, is it possible? Yes, there are some examples of that. If you're buying anything in a grocery store, it's rarely local. I mean, they make, there are some cases where they make a big deal about it being local, sometimes cheese, some certain things like that. But most things, if it's on the shelf at that grocery store, it's come a far distance. It's gone through so many hands. And just as much as that distance increases the food safety vulnerability, that food's journey, the more complicated and distance it is, impacts data's, you know, data security, uh, cybersecurity of that information. And yeah, data integrity. And data integrity, yeah, because you look at the idea of, you know, are you sure that all the data was collected properly, that it was the right data collected, that it was collected, uh, and there's no errors, right? You know, have things that, like some things are in one unit, some things are in another unit, or some things were rounded out, some things weren't whatever, right? Then you have data storage, you have data security, data access, all these different things that play a role where there's these critical hazard points of someone being able to affect its integrity. And again, sometimes it could be unintentional, like I said, you know, but it's these intentional acts that goes back to what the person was saying in terms of there could be an intentional adulteration, an intentional cyber hack that it takes place and it takes a very long time for enough information coming out for someone to go, oh, we have an issue. Let's start investigating. And the investigation finds out what it is. And now they've got to resolve this issue. And in many cases, consumers never even hear it. Yeah, because like you said, you know, legal gets involved and 
brand new reputation, things are kept really quiet. And I think the general public probably thinks that we're, they're getting inundated by recalls, maybe because it all kind of came down at the same time. But like you said, this has been years almost in the making of some of these. I mean, baby formula, we're still dealing with that fallout, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And they just released some new rulings about that recently, which is you know good on FDA and USDA for getting that done, which is great. But resources are limited there. The other thing I would say to Darren in that whole supply chain aspect is it's not just one company that's dealing with this. You have so many third parties, so much risk. And I'm not saying that all third parties are a risk in terms of like their risky behaviors. We just don't know what we don't know, right? You could make cookies in your house and then bring them over to your neighbors and they could mash them up and make brownies out of them. I don't know, right? Like it's just a kind of a, a weird s symbol of, you don't know what's gonna happen once your cookies leave your house. You just don't know. Right, right. But there's also, did you ever hear of the Peanut Corporation of America event? I personally did, but I'm sure our listeners would love to hear about it. So this is a landmark case in two aspects. One is that ultimately the CEO went to federal prison for 28 years. His brother the, who was working with them for 20 years and a bunch of plant managers and QA managers went to prison for like three, five, six, years. The other thing that was kind of landmark about it is this is recorded as one of the most expensive recalls in U.S. history because over 3,900 different types of products, not 3,900 products, not 3,900 companies, if you have 3,900 different types of products, because most people don't realize that peanut dust, and this is what it came down to, peanut dust, like almost like sawdust, peanut powder, peanut dust is used in cake mixes and, and things that you don't even see that there's nuts. Like, you know, if you have like one of those ice creams that has nuts on it, you know, okay, there's nuts, right? But there's a lot of things that don't, you know, you don't think of them as having nuts, but there's technically there's nuts in there, right? And in this case, the reason I bring this up is because the QA manager ended up going to prison for five years for her act. She was called the queen of liquid paper. Essentially, if they couldn't get test results back good enough to ship off uh, to whoever, Duncan Hines or whatever, whatever cake mix or candy bar company or whoever was buying their ingredients, right? She literally would just liquid paper over the day and put it like that. And in a way, it's like it's pre-technology fabrication. It easily could have been something that it was done with the technology. And you look at how information is communicated today and how documentation and certifications and validations are done. There are companies that are dealing with the fact that they will get an emailed certificate of test results or a validation, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, well, they say, well, we, we want to have digitization of things, right? But those digital records, people are working now to have like validation micro certification such that there's these versions of these certificates that cannot be altered. If it's altered in any way, it now, you know, will have some stamp on it kind of thing, right? So validation of these certificates, certificates are incredibly important because we know that there are certifications. Uh, I work with uh, this one person uh, and she does certification, right? She, I kid you not, she gets regular emails from people saying, if I just send you this money, would you send me a certificate? Ew. And she's like, no, because the process is I have to go to your plant, I have to do this, I have to do these tests, these tests have to go off to, you know, an independent analysis company, blah, 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 blah. This is the process you have to go through this. This is why it costs this much. And she goes, it's one thing to get that, you know, once. It's another thing that she gets it on a regular basis. All these companies that think that they could just buy, buy a certificate. And, uh, you know, no one's going to really, no one's ever going to look. So it doesn't really matter. I'm, it's, it's stupid that we have to go through this process. I just need to make sure that I can satisfy the auditor 
over and have these these stupid papers around if the FDA comes or if the USDA comes to verify this thing. There are people out there in this world that think that that is all they have to do. That's the way of doing business. Is they shouldn't just, be working know, in the food it. industry. They should not be in the food you, industry. You really shouldn't. You really shouldn't. But That's gross. unfortunately, you know, it is these these bad actors, if you will, that will undermine the incredible intentions and efforts and successes of so many people out there that go out of their way to do things the right way. And that, that has to always include uh, security, even for the things that the average consumer will never see. Thank you for staying with us on this insightful journey through the entwining worlds of food safety and cybersecurity. I hope the discussion has sparked your interest and expanded your understanding of these critical issues. Stay tuned as we continue our conversation with Dr. Detweiler, exploring innovative solutions and the future of food safety in the digital age. Because here's an incident and this incident ultimately made it to the public and we saw a loss because of our brand reputation hit and loss in sales it cost us $20 million. And well, it's a cost of doing business. Okay, how about this? How about $1 million investing into this to do it the right way, to do it properly, to you know, completely secure your data and to have the right people to have the right third party people coming and verifying your systems. How about that's the cost of doing business? That's where a lot of people kind of lose, you know, this this mindset. It's like um, I keep using this analogy of, you know, if I was to try to sell you this magic whistle that kept polar bears away and you can't hear it, right? It's like there are finance teams that I can't quantify that. I, I'm not seeing any polar bears, so I can't quantify that, right? So we'll wait until we have a cybersecurity uh, cyber hit, right? Attack. Okay, so you're going to wait until you have seven polar bears attacking at you and gnawing on your arms or whatever. And, you know, it's, it's a little too late for that uh, scenario for that person there being attacked. At least your finance department will be able to quantify and count and put it on a spreadsheet the number of polar bears were there. We can justify the cost of business of dealing with the economic ramifications of that. I know that sounds I, crazy, but it's, it's, it's almost not. Like that's how people are talking in terms of cybersecurity, not just within the food industry, but in most industries. And it's like, we'll deal with it when it happens. Okay, that's that's not cost of doing business. That's cost of burying your head in the sand and hoping that you will be able to economically recover at the expense of those consumers that, um, you know, you were taught, you brought up about the chicks on the conveyor belt in the documentary. I think it was more than just the chicks that that was referring to. The fact that there are companies out there that literally conceptualize their consumers as a commodity that they are going down the conveyor belt. You know, when they're gone, there'll be another consumer who will buy that product. So why worry about a consumers when there'll be a new batch of consumers. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's what's scary. And remind me, Darren, the, the peanut incident was actually because of rats, right? Uh, there were holes in the roof. There was uh, contamination from rats and bird droppings. They were literally getting onto these open piles of the, the product that was just being collected until there was enough of it to fill a truck. The owner of the company was basically ordering his people to sweep the bird poop off of the food and ship it. And don't worry about testing it. There's a lot more to the story. Even the fact that here's a, this is another kind of interesting little element. Um, the Department of Justice was investigating it, and they they found out that there were multiple plants. And the company stated over and over again, "We don't ship product from one location to location." Well, they lied. There was another location that the government didn't know about. This is the most ironic. That's right, Plainview, Texas. There's a city in Plain a city in Texas called Plainview, Texas, and no one knew that the plant 
plant was uh, located in Plainview, Texas. And when they looked at it even deeper, they found that there were over 300 food manufacturing companies in the state of Texas that were not registered with the state of Texas. So not only was the federal government not aware of there being these operations in Texas, even the state of Texas had no operations for taking place. And they weren't doing inspections. They were not, you know, looking into this at all. And these places were just doing their kind of business. And you can look at that and go, wow, that was an important lesson to learn from um, this whole thing with the peanuts. Uh, that, right? Well, when we talk about cottage foods and we talk about, you know, differences between states and where some states allow, you know, uh, food to be uh, manufactured in one kind of a location or another kind of location, we have ghost kitchens, we have consolidated kitchen work, like kitchens where food trucks have a physical building where they can make a lot of their food and then they put it in their trucks and then they continue to process the kind of thing. How are those recorded and registered and regulated, uh, you know, from state to state? Um, as we were talking about cybersecurity issues within the food industry, realize that the differences from state to state in terms of how things are classified, how things are regulated, how things follow a model food code from the FDA have a significant impact in terms of what is expected within that. And then you have other issues like how some states are now lowering their minimum age for certain uh, you know, workers in different industries at the same time that the government, the Department of uh, Labor is, you know, suing and fining uh, many companies. They're finding that there's, you know, there's 14, 15 year olds that are using hazardous chemicals and equipment in um, slaughterhouse cleaning after hours. Why is a 14 year old working at one o'clock in the morning using chemicals and equipments in a slaughterhouse uh, kind of a thing? And why is it that these are kids from Guatemala and all these different issues which start to cloud? Okay, well, wait a minute. Who's monitoring this? Who's What data is being collected to make sure this is done? It, you know, you're, you're collecting information about the, the cleanser being used, but is anyone collecting information about underage uh, immigrant children are the ones that are being tasked to do this? And if we have a hard enough time getting adults to understand and take actions in terms of food safety, how are we supposed to get a 14-year-old at 1 o'clock in the morning to think about proper data collection and storage, or proper cleanliness, uh, you know, cleaning protocols and, and SOPs? It just, it just becomes a very complicated landscape yeah. in terms of how vulnerable our systems are and all the reason why you need to make sure that we're not just leaving it up to our IT team, we're not just waiting until it's required of us, that we're looking at adequately assessing our vulnerabilities, bringing in outside people to double up on these assessments of our vulnerabilities, to look at how we can improve our security around preventing data hacks, preventing failures in terms of data security, even, you know, again, data um, credibility, data integrity. Uh, integrity, all these issues, right? And we need to consistently and and, and constantly be looking at how we can improve this because if we don't, um, you know, it's kind of like when you're when you're in the middle of a crisis, it's not the time to be saying we need to stop everything and rethink everything, right? Because no one in the finance department and no one in the C-suite is going to say, yeah, let's stop manufacturing. Let's send everyone home. We're going to figure things out. Come back. No, they're going to say we need to continue with this. We have this. We have we have our quarterly earning statements. We have to make sure that we're meeting promises, right? We don't want we don't want to stop going down the freeway, you know. But at the same time, we can't ask our Uber driver to replace the the wheel. The treads are too bare on without stopping. So there has to be a point where you're saying, you know, we have to constantly be looking at this, even if this means that we have to kind of reveal some of our vulnerability in the process. But you know, there's another incident I want to bring up. Do you remember? 
remember the whole Tylenol scare back in the 80s? Yeah, wasn't there just another scare too with like Motrin as well recently? Yeah, but the Tylenol uh, sticks out in terms of someone was trying to basically kill someone, make it look like it was a much bigger issue by, you know, lacing, poisoning, Tylenol, large quantities. Kind of. And, you know, two things came out of that other than like arrests. Of course. Um, one was that, yeah, now we have safety seals, plastic wrap around a box. You open the box, you've got plastic wrap around the bottle. You take the plastic wrap off, you open the bottle, there's still another seal you got to take off kind of thing. Right? And if you realize too, if you remember back then, you used to be able to go to the grocery store and just open a thing of yogurt or cottage cheese, or whatever, put the lid wrap back on. And uh, even with the, the ice cream liquor, why is it that some stores you could literally, some places have the plastic around the lid and some places don't. You could literally just open up a, a container of, of, of ice cream. So the ice cream, it was the, it was the fault of that person. It was the fault of that person who was opening the lid and- Exposed that vulnerability. Right. Ultimately. It wasn't the fault of the company that didn't see the need to put a seal around, right? Well, when we go back to the Tylenol issue, not only did that company take ownership of it and flew people out to make sure that, that things were recalled and things were recovered and they got in front of it, they said, look, we didn't cause this, but we can do better, right? And and we can do this. And now we're going to put all these security seals and all that kind of safety seals and all that kind of stuff. And we're going to you know do this, right? Their reputation for how they responded to it, uh, people don't forget that. People never really, if you were aware of the incident, you know, if you were right at the time, you remembered how well that company responded. But again, you have like the, the flip side with the ice cream where you're just, you're just pointing blame and saying it's their fault. It's their fault. We don't have any responsibilities. We saw this with Chipotle. Chipotle is criticized for passing the blame as far as they can. So many other examples of, of people, you know, they, they try to place the blame elsewhere instead of taking ownership of we could have done better. And cybersecurity is the same way. If you have a vulnerability and you weren't protected it, you can't point the blame at the people who took advantage of you and say that it wasn't your fault to have prevented this in the first place. So, you know, that's kind of like about... a victim mentality. I'm not no, like into that area. No, no, not at all. I mean, I think that what you're bringing up is how do we deal with the shame of it? And this is, this is right down to the bear of the issue is how do we deal with the shame of, oh crap, somebody exploited a vulnerability we didn't even know we had because we didn't do the best that we could or we did do the best that we could, but couldn't. Yeah, so I think that that, you know, and I think you beautifully wrapped that up, Darren, because sometimes we forget there were humans serving humans, right? And I think yeah. that is what's really scary. Mind Over Cyber is a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to addressing mental health and burnout in cybersecurity by teaching defenders accessible and portable mindfulness. We're supported by vendors and CIO groups. Our inaugural event kicks off with a network breakfast at RSA 2024 on May 7th. This unique event will feature breakfast, mini mindfulness workshops led by expert teachers, and the introduction of the Allied Armband Challenge to combat sexual harassment in cyber. All sponsorships and donations are tax deductible. Learn more at mindovercyber.org and follow Mind Over Cyber on LinkedIn for updates. Registration opens soon.
as we're coming to a close here, how do you look at the future? Because we've, we're just expanding the attack vectors and vulnerabilities. We've got people that are doing nefariously horrible things, sometimes very intentionally and sometimes unintentionally. And then I wrote down while we were talking about the, the peanut issue with the rats and the birds. What about the people who bought that product from that company? What's their responsibility in this? So. As we're going forward, especially with cybersecurity and all the great tech that's out there, and like I said before, we look and see things on a very godlike access level. How do we actually start combining our powers to get to the, a place that we feel a little bit safer so we can move through shame, protect and safeguard lives, and get to the get to the remembrance of we're people serving people? Well, we can't wait until the government mandates. True. And we can't wait until it's too late and there's already been an incident. And we can't wait until there's enough consumer demand that we do something different. And we can't wait until we're being sued, right? So when you look at the idea of, do you wait until there's changes in legislation or litigation, there's political pressure, there's, you know, wh where do you wait in terms of this, right? Because the longer we wait, it's gonna cost, there'll be more liabilities, there'll be more people harmed, and it's going to be harder to find those right options. So I think the easier question is stop focusing on the how and focusing on sooner than later is the win. As soon as a company starts talking about this, consulting with this, partnering with this, engaging in conversation, even with their competitors within the, you know, the bigger sector of commodities or whatever, you know, this is why we have, you know, all the people in the peanut or all the people in the leafy green or all the people in fast food or all the people in convenience stores or whatever need to continue to gather and talk about these things until we are talking about this as a normal part of our our business it's not just about profits it's not just about um, cleanliness it's not just about safety it's not just about this it's also about cybersecurity issues and until we start talking about it it's it's already too late in a way mm. right it, it's no longer like technology of the future space age technology the cutting edge the next big thing it's already here and if you're not dealing with it and it happens here's what can happen to you you can be an executive executive who sits there in a court of law and you're basically being questioned by the prosecution team in terms of you knew this was a potential threat and you knew there were some solutions, but you chose not to address this issue. You chose not to use what were known solutions or known avenues of a solution to even address this. Therefore, you chose to be vulnerable and thus to make your consumers vulnerable. It's like you're a parent who chose not to put your kids in car seats or seatbelts or, or whatever. It's the same kind of thing. There was a solution. You can't blame the incident that happened outside if you weren't willing to take responsibility for minimizing those vulnerabilities and providing as much possible training resources, thought leadership, whatever it is, in terms of protecting some of those, protecting your company from those vulnerabilities. That's the whole intent of the corporate, the responsible corporate officer doctrine. The responsible corporate officer doctrine does not ding you and punish you because something happened. It dings you and punishes you because you decided not to take Take action and stop doing this or start doing that when you knew that action had to be taken. So it's a yeah. morality check. Yeah, morality it check. is. It is. You know, when you look at the idea of economic responsibilities and legal responsibility, there's also the ethical responsibilities as well. And those kind of go hand in hand. You can't just be, well, look at company executives, look at, you know, CEOs that are measured by, you know, they get a $15 million Christmas bonus because they increase their, you know, profitability by such a sense stuff. Okay, that's great. But did they address 
food safety? Did they address uh, cybersecurity issues? Because if they did, did they even that, know? Did they even know? Is the scary thing, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like I got from point A to B. Okay, but you did it while speeding and not wearing a seatbelt, and you were drunk at the time. So I'm glad you got from point A to point B. But you're, you know, the way you did it was wrong. You know, it's like sportsmanship. You can win the yeah. game, but you can lose the game in terms of your bad sportsmanship. You could also lose the game, but be great in terms of your sportsmanship. And that's what, uh, you know, that's what we looked at. That's why we liked the Ted Lasso show. It taught us that there was much more to the game than the actual game itself. I think cybersecurity is like one of those things. It's much more than just the, you know, the quarterly profit statements, stockholder dividends, all that stuff. Darren, you were speaking to my, my heart on this. I... And we've talked about this so many times anyways together and there's so much more work to do i really want to thank you for your time of being here this has been enlightening as always you always give me so much more to think about um, after speaking with you and uh i really do appreciate that you are such an ally in this uh i don't want to say fight but in this journey to keep people safe and when they ingest food well thank you very much and i need to go um, write out my username and password and put it on my, my screen so that everyone can see it your uh, username and password has probably already been in a breach so it really is much matter. yeah so i think a lot of people don't realize that that your data is already gone oh, oh well maybe i need to change my password you just keep it separate from your work stuff. You know, I can kid about this, but in all actuality, first off, thank you for having me on your episode here and, and talking with you about this. But I think that um, you know, ultimately, uh, we're all consumers. Whether we sit in a C-suite or we are sitting in uh, a baby's high chair, you know, we're, we're all vulnerable. No one wants to um, live with the chair forever at the family table. No one wants to make this coming holiday gathering either be their last or be memorable for all the process. And it's not all about cooking refrigeration and preventing cross-contamination washing hands all about the bigger picture in terms of our vulnerabilities and unfortunately we're in a world where uh, cybersecurity is another one of those vulnerabilities until we really understand that not only does our bigger picture of Herculean effort around food safety involve a great deal of work and strength and technology can be definitely a bonus in terms of work and strength it ultimately comes down to the courage the very real human emotional element we have to have the courage to say that we need to prioritize cybersecurity. We need to invest in cybersecurity. We need to consider this. We need to assess it. We need to make sure that it's, uh, even if it makes us seem a little bit open and people know that there are these threats out there or these actions we're taking, that we have the courage to make sure that we are taking these. And I don't know how you hire courage. I don't know of too many job ads where you look at the higher qualifications, minimum qualifications, and it says courage on there. I wish they would start doing that because I think that it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not just the know-how at the end understanding. There are people with know-how particularly understanding. We just don't have the courage to take it to the next level. And I'm hoping the conversations like what we have today will help people recognize and leverage the courage they have to, to make a difference. You couldn't have closed this out any better, Darren. Thank you very much. And keep fighting the good fight and being courageous as you are, because we need more people like you. So thank you for being that example. Thank you very much. As we wrap up part two of our exploration into cybersecurity's impact on food safety, I'd like to extend a heartfelt thank you to you, the listener, for engaging your curiosity and to Dr. Darren for his invaluable insights. Remember, the conversation doesn't need to end here. Subscribe to Bites and Bites podcast to stay updated on future episodes that will continue to unravel the critical issues at the intersection of technology and our food supply. I'm your host, Kristen Demaranville. Until next time, stay safe, stay curious, and we'll see you on the next episode. Bye for now.